Radio. This is Robbie Martin. And this is Abby Martin. So, so what's going on? Well, we haven't done one in a while. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of stuff um, mm-hmm. that's happened since uh, our last episode. Um, but I wanted to start today's episode just by uh, remembering um, one of my favorite comedians and um, basically people like famous people. I mean, of people who have touched me mm-hmm. in my life. Um, you know, I mean, there's for everybody out there, there's probably a handful or, you know, a couple dozen of celebrities or musicians or artists that you've, you know, you can say have truly touched you in some way and that you'll remember um, and that they've influenced you in some way. And uh, Gary Shandling was one of those big people in my life who, um, ever since I was a kid, um, and I don't know if you're, if you remember this, Abby, but, uh, mom, um, used to watch the Gary Shandling show, mm-hmm. uh, when we were growing up, I think it was on in the late eighties. It was on Showtime. Um, I remember watching a little bit of it when I was a kid and not just totally not understanding it, but remembering that mom loved it and she was Mm -hmm. trying to explain it to me and, you know, saying it was like this weird abstract comedy, didn't really understand it. And then when the Larry Sanders show came on, um, which was like the, his, you know, his second sitcom and that was on HBO. Um, I was old enough to, to start watching it. And uh, I just remember I think I was like in middle school when I when I had started watching it and I just was so hooked on it. There was really nothing else like it on mm-hmm. television. This is before <clears throat> Curb Your Enthusiasm, The Office, uh Extras, all these shows that you see now, especially Extras and Curb Your Enthusiasm where they have like celebrities playing asshole versions of themselves. Um Larry Sanders was the first show to do that. It was basically a fake talk show where Gary Shandling was playing this fake talk show host, Larry Sanders, and there would be real celebrity guests on every week on the show. So there'd be like Jim Carrey, Jerry Seinfeld, um, you know, movie star, yeah, Alan like, Alda, all Yeah, these and like the, like the majority of the show would take place behind the scenes where, you know, that would just be a part of it. And then you'd see all the interactions exactly. going on with the characters and stuff. And that was really a yes. first of its kind of that kind of sitcom, right? Yeah, I mean, there was, I think there were other shows that, like there was the, the Fred, Fred Willard had a fake talk show mm-hmm. um, in this late seventies and I forgot the name of it, but it was just like, that was just more like a parody of like Johnny Carson where mm-hmm. it was the fake show the whole time. But yeah, well, you just said Larry Sanders was, I'd say only about 10% of it was actually the show, like him doing the fake show, which if you watch it now, it's it's so well done that the scenes of the act when they're actually filming this the fake Larry Sanders show they look completely realistic. They're filmed on videotape. They when they switch back to the behind the scenes, it's film. Um, there's a live there's actually a live studio audience that they would perform the fake show in front of to make it even more realistic feeling. Um, so, I mean, it, there's really nothing else like it. Even with all these other shows that have been inspired, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Extras. I don't think any of them really stand up to Larry Sanders. And I know I'm talking about the Larry Sanders show a whole bunch, but it really is. I mean, it's, I'd say it is the best television show ever made. And I mean, it's easily one of the best, I mean, it's the best comedy show. Yeah. Like if people, you know, I love Seinfeld and I've watched every Seinfeld episode like 
20 times and I know mom has too and I, I know that you love Seinfeld too we love Curb Your Enthusiasm but and if anyone out there does as well then you have to watch this because it really is the precursor to that whole genre and kind of groundbreaking era of comedy and it's just amazing and I mean it was just so devastating where we're going with this obviously is that Gary Shannon passed away <clears throat> at at how old Robbie extremely young 66 <clears throat> that's insane yeah that's and- insane it is insane. And apparently he had some kind of glandular mm-hmm. um, problems that he had talked about in an interview with, with Jerry Seinfeld, actually, that oh, show Comedians in Cars. Yeah. He was on that show about, I believe, like three weeks before his death talking about death. They had this wow. really deep spiritual conversation because I guess towards the end of his life and even before, Gary Shanley was always struggling with ego, like everybody does. And he was trying to become like a Buddhist sort of like, mm-hmm. you know, mentoring other comedians. Like he wasn't working right after Larry Sanders show. Like he didn't, um, he, he did like, he was in like Captain America, winter soldier, yeah, yeah, yeah. Iron Man too. You know, like he was, he was played like a bit part in winter soldier where he whispers in a guy's ear, hail Hydra, which is like <laughs> the most hilarious part of the movie. You know, he just had to say one, you know, he could do a cameo in a movie and he would make you smile and laugh. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Conan O'Brien did this really heartfelt um, tribute about him. Uh, Louis C.K. said some words about him on the Charlie uh, Rose show. And yeah, I mean, just from a just from a it's the point of view of a groundbreaking comedy, a groundbreaking person mm-hmm. uh, all around. I mean, just think of the comedians that he was able to bring on to the Larry Sanders show, the mm-hmm, cast of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first time we saw Sarah Silverman, Janine Garofalo. Um, it was the first time we saw Jeffrey Tambor, Hank, one of the most tragic and b- most interesting TV show characters of all time, Hank, where oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when, when he was, it was like he was such a vulnerable character, but at the same time, he was such an asshole and a piece of shit. Whenever he would... Whenever he would get anything, whenever he would be in a good mood on the show, you hated him. But then when he was, you know, when he'd become shattered or something, he was experiencing some kind of emotional turmoil, it was tragic. It almost made you want to cry because the character was just so perfectly portrayed. Um, I mean, even Bob Odenkirk, he was, that was the first show he was on too, um, playing uh, uh, Larry Sanders' agent. Yeah. And I think the final thing I want to say about the Larry Sanders show and Gary Shanoline is all these comedians today who sort of portray this schleppy, like, Oh, I'm a sad sack. Like no women like me. I'm middle-aged. I'm, I'm growing old. You know, a lot of that to me comes off as disingenuous and kind of almost like an act. Like that's not like it's self-deprecating, but it's not self-deprecating to the point that I think Gary Shandling was able to hit. And what he was able to do is it was almost like, even with the Larry Shanner show and just with this comedy in general, it was like there was a tragedy and a reality to like how your ego was always in the way. Mm-hmm. No matter if you're feeling good, bad, lonely, it was always going to be a curse. No matter how famous he got, no matter how many you know good looking women, celebrities he slept with on the show, it was like that was... Uh, that yeah. was the conflict. Yeah, and it was like darker. And, it was like much, dar- you know, Seinfeld is kind of that same thing where, you know, Jerry Seinfeld yeah. is just like this oblivious, like egomaniac and all, all of them are, you know, and so is Curb and stuff. But this was different because he was like, 
masked with this depression and like this darkness that carried along with the show that was below the comedy. You yeah, know? it was below. It was like, <clears throat> you're absolutely right. It was like at the heart of the show, mm-hmm. it was a drama. Right. And on top of it was comedy. Whereas yeah. like Seinfeld, it's like a black comedy. It's like these characters are tragic, but they're caricatures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't know. It's, I mean, for people who have no idea who Gary Shandling is or Larry Sanders, this, this rant might sound you know, a little hyperbolic, but I can't stress enough how important Gary Shandling was to comedy and, and just in my life, like as, you know, my outlook and, and the things that I'm into today. So. Yeah. um, And and what's kind of unfortunate, I mean, it, it, because he was that older generation, I felt like he didn't get the love that he should have. I mean, I know that he definitely got a, a bunch of amazing tributes from comedians and stuff like that, but it just seems like amidst the David Bowie, and Prince, it's like Gary Shandling just kind of, and Alan Richter and, you know, all these people tragically have died this year. And it just seems like Gary Shandling, because he was the kind of that older ilk, uh, you know, just a, a little bit more of a quiet death. Um, so I'm really happy that we're talking about him because I, I wanted to say one more thing. I never actually interacted with him, but he did follow me on Twitter. And when I saw that he did, and he'd only followed not very many people. So I know that it was obviously deliberate. So he must have liked the politics, you know, and seen something about the show or what we're doing and stuff. So that that's amazing to know that he, something that we did was on his radar and, and, and he was interested in that kind of alternative politics. So that on top of him being a comedic genius and groundbreaking and changing comedy as we know it, just the fact that he was interested in alternative politics and even had his eyes set on something outside of, you know, the establishment narrative when it comes to that kind of stuff is amazing and just is really heartwarming. I just wish that I was able to interview him. I, I reached out to him, but he never wrote me back um, just saying, you know, I'd love to to talk to you and stuff, but just an amazing guy. Yeah, that's, a, that's amazing. I remember you telling me that um, before he passed away and being really jealous that... Uh, <laughs> That in some way you, I mean, you did, you know, that, I mean, that he was aware of you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, there have been other celebrity deaths in the past mm-hmm. couple of years that have hit me pretty hard. But this one, I can't remember the last time a um, someone like, you know, a famous person dying that hit me mm-hmm. this hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you were um, really... Because you, you it was just like I was it, always yeah. waiting. Yeah, I was waiting for him to see what he would do next. Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah, you know, exactly. part of me thought, well, maybe he won't, mm-hmm. and that's good. That's fine because what he's already done is so brilliant and so game changing that that's you know that's okay if that if he's just sort of he's done with um with with doing comedy. But uh, yeah, I don't. I mean, I know I, I didn't really mean that when I thought it, but you know, now that he's gone and there won't be anymore, it's just it's such a big loss. Yeah, it's like um, the David Bowie thing was sad too because it was like damn i really wish that i would taken the chance to see him play prince didn't affect yeah. me nearly at all because i never really was into his music um i mean i appreciated him for the like the gender bending you know like role that he played where he you know he's this is jehovah's it's like very confusing he's a jehovah's witness he he's straight male hetero but plays his first live show and like you know th- thigh high high heels and shit and like a bikini top. So it's just like a very, I mean, I love that he did that kind of stuff. I love that he just was constantly challenging people and like freaking people out and just being, 
exactly who he was and didn't try to be someone that he wasn't. But I mean, when it comes to politics, I know that he like donated to like Black Lives Matter and stuff, but he also seemed like he was like into Alex Jones and chemtrails and stuff. So it's funny to see all the conspiracy sites just trying to make a buck off like these deaths, you know, and just make it all about like, oh, it's a conspiracy. Like, oh, Prince knew. Knew what? Like, No, dude, he fucking OD'd. Like, why don't we talk about um, overdosing? Because that's actually a really serious thing that like the second leading cause of accidental death in the US. So much more likely than the Illuminati offing Prince because he talked about chemtrails five years ago on Tavis Smiley's show. So I don't know. The David Bowie yeah. thing was kind of a same similar character, you know, this this gender bending figure. And I don't know, it's just crazy how many people are dying, like relatively young. I know. You know, Alan Richter and- is like another really awesome figure that I always really enjoyed seeing in movies and stuff. So it's just sad. And it is, it is the Bowie. I mean, Bowie was, you know, affected a lot of people and affected me too. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a huge listener of his stuff, but Laurie is. And uh, it's, but, but with him, I think the, I guess the difference between him and, you know, like Prince and Bowie versus channeling is like, they had such a huge body of work yeah. that I feel like, you know, maybe even from their perspective, they were content with sort of the amount of things that they put out. And mm-hmm. I always wondered if Shanelin was like, if mm-hmm. he had any other irons in the fire that he just couldn't figure out a way to get out there, or if he was sort of content with what he had done. And that's sort of a question. I think a lot of people will be wondering mm-hmm. because there there are a lot of great artists out there who, for one reason or another, they just fall off the radar, um, not for any health reasons or anything. I mean, there's this brilliant ambient musician, um, this Japanese musician named Tetsu Inoue, who I have been a fan of for uh, you know a dozen years, and just all of a sudden he just dropped off the map. Um, he's not dead. He's still alive. Um but nobody can figure out why he uh, stopped releasing material. And uh, it's just one of those things. You just never really know. Um, people choose to do what they want. And, you know, some people choose not to be in the spotlight anymore. And interfacing with the public is just not something they want to do. And, you know, I guess we need to respect that as consumers of, of you know, people's art. Um, and some of the most brilliant artists, I think, are also some of the, sometimes some of the most tragic figures who don't, feel like they're part of society um, and can relate to other people as well. So I think we need to keep mm-hmm. that in mind too. And yeah, it seemed like some of this like privacy, tr- it's good. Mm-hmm. It's good to like respect privacy when people die, you know? So it is in some ways it's kind of sad to see all this stuff coming out about Prince now and, you know, yeah, cause he was a really private do, guy. You know? Like he, he, he took yeah. on fake aliases to donate to like Trayvon Martin's family and shit. Like he obviously yeah. didn't want the accolades. Um, yeah. So it's like super disgusting to see people like Alex Jones actually like just, you know, just like profiting off his death, just like super shamelessly saying all this crazy shit that it's just like, dude, you are a con artist. You know that this isn't true. Why are you doing this? Like, <laughs> why are you well, doing he is this? The quintessential you- <laughs> con artist. <laughs> why are you doing this? <laughs> he's doing it for the money and for the hits. Yeah. And he's, I mean, We've seen the evolution of Alex Jones and Paul Joseph Watson in InfoWars oh for the last God. eight years. And, you know, I mean, 
I had some problems with with the way he was operating his thing ever mm-hmm. s- from the beginning, ever since the beginning. But I was able to tolerate what he was doing. I, I I was able to ingest parts of it and enjoy parts of it for what it was. But his turn to the generic, um, sort of like paleo conservative, Drudge Report world um, after Obama got in office is completely opportunistic, um, really disingenuous. Uh, and just really shameful and sad. Uh, this is coming from the man who used to talk about how the left and right paradigm is destroying us all and how we sort of like need to unite. Yet when you go to his webpage today, you go to Infowars.com right now, um, there's an article talking men- like that mentions Salon. It's not even like a hit piece on Salon, but it calls Salon an establishment leftist website. Like that's how it refers to Salon in the headline of an Infowars article. And it's just... It's just really weird because that to me seems purposely divisive. Of course. Like as if they're getting messaging from whoever funds them now that they are the third largest conservative website in the world, which is extremely Holy disturbing. Wow. Um, but uh, it's just, you know, they constantly um, shift and morph and adapt to sort of the current iteration of what is currently acceptable within like edgy conservatism. So if you notice all the truther stuff that they used to talk mm-hmm. about, like actual truth, like mm-hmm. real shit, like 9-11 stuff, it's all pretty much gone from their website now. Um, but they'll talk about Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about things that like the right wing generic Johnny come lately conspiracy theorists are into now, like chemtrails and mm-hmm. Sandy Hook mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, it's pure opportunism, and and it, and it it's kind of funny. And I don't want to talk about this for very long because uh, it's. I mean, they're mostly just really disgusting people and sad people. But a lot of these new atheists who whoa, we've whoa, talked whoa, about before. Wait, before on podcast, we, before we get into the yeah. new atheist thing, I, I do want to say one more thing about Alex Jones because yeah, yeah, I think that you know I used to like looking at all my stuff like outside the left right paradigm right meaning the whole time outside the two party dictatorship this dictatorial paradigm that we're taught to be belong to these teams these parties these groups right now it's all these people who are just rabid islamophobes that are like basically they don't understand that right and left does not mean democrat and republican they think it's just like like for example I posted this thing about capitalism and I've been criticizing capitalism for fucking years. I mean, it's, it's very obvious that we live in an insanely unequal economic system. You can argue all day that it's not this utopian idealized version of what capitalism should be, but it's like pretty much irrefutable, incontrovertible that there are inherent contradictions that, you know, it's, it's fucked. And I've been saying this for years, but it's like this concern trolling of people being like, I thought you were outside the the right left paradigm like using like the this language that's like this Alex Jones like truncated dumbed down language that doesn't mean what it should mean and being like you're yeah, a leftist it's like they like misinterpreted it's like what? what and then they think that everything goes back to the federal reserve and government it's like this very bizarre view where look government is incentivized by market like the market um up, the government is formed to like cater to market interests. It's like to just point to the government as the root of all evils and be like, we just need to be like voluntarists and, and, and anarchists. It's like, I totally agree with anarchy and like libertarianism in the sense that Noam Chomsky's an anarcho libertarian, like socialist libertarian. 
where it's like there is a spectrum where it kind of goes all the way back to the left if you really look at like the fundamentals of libertarianism but like these people are not they have no idea what the fuck they're talking about and it's just so frustrating because it's like dude and it's all i swear to god it's like the ron paul and alex jones people who i just have the most trouble with because i'm like look i used to be in this mindset 10 years ago like understand that it's like bigger than this it's bigger than just the federal reserve like every country and government has like central banks like that's not you know printing money is not the root of like why this is so fucked up it's just like it just is very sad and I just feel like I've been like battling these people forever and it's like super exhausting. And and it's always this extremely belittling, condescending, the same way as the new atheist people to be like, what happened to you? Why don't you just learn? Well, like you need to called, read. Yeah, it's concern trolling. It's, it's fucking phony. nuts. I mean, anyway, I, mean, I just had to vent. <laughs> no, I mean, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think that there's a couple of points that mm-hmm. come to mind. The, the left-right paradigm was previously referring to the Republicans versus Democrats and the way that the establishment and different political action groups would seize on the energy of the left and the right. We're not saying that it doesn't literally exist. Like we're not saying that they're that that like people who are like right wingers aren't right wing or that that like literally doesn't exist on a spectrum. That's dumb. But yeah, but what I'm trying to say is that the so the this idea that um the, 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 so to me, that's what it, the paradigm really means yeah. is that when this when the energies are manipulated to further like a bigger co- like a mm-hmm. bigger power cause. So what's interesting to me is there was solidarity between mm-hmm, libertarians mm-hmm. and people who are more socialist, radical leftist early Alex Jones era. Mm-hmm. That's why you saw a lot of people who are listening to things like Infowars and things on the fringe left, like Guerrilla News Network. Mm-hmm. They shared solidarity with people on these extreme factions because it's like they understood that to fight the power, it's like the power was really the, you know, it was really the enemy. And just like the, um, the Kucinich, Ron Paul, like, um, yeah, the, that sort of like dream ticket. Yeah. What? That coalition back in. Yeah, yeah. So that, so it's really interesting to me to watch these same people, Infowars, who were carrying that sort of spirit, which I think is very positive, yeah. regardless of what you think of Alex Jones and yeah. Forrest, that mentality and that spirit, I think, is extremely powerful and important. And the fact that Alex Jones reversed the bus on that and started like going in reverse is extremely strange and questionable. And I don't think he just did it purely to get more followers. I think it was, I think at some point, Alex Jones made a pact with big power um, political uh, groups in the United States to actually become a tool for them and to manipulate the dialogue to stifle the power of the people. I know that sound, that almost sounds paranoid, but if you really think about it, Alex Jones has an extremely powerful voice in this country. When you see Trump going on his show to mm-hmm, promote his campaign, mm-hmm. we have crossed a threshold. Right. This is no longer a fringe network of conspiracy theorists. This is a large player in the right-wing political yeah, movement. Yeah, and Roger in the Stone, States. Roger Stone Trump's like one of his advisors goes on Alex Jones He's like going every on there week, like dude. every week. Yeah, he he every was week. like Nixon's advisor too. It's shocking. And like that and his and his other girl that could Katarina or Katrina or whatever the girl who came on with an ammo necklace that Gary Shandling was like that's a bit much did you see that where she came on TV with like a gun necklace like actual no. bullets 
It was like no. total idiocracy. I like Gary Shandling just like screenshotted it. He was like a bit much <laughs> about it. But I was just talking about how that woman also is like a kind of more in that that realm of like Alex Jones people. And she's on yeah. Fox News all the time talking about his campaign and stuff. Yeah, and I can't emphasize enough how when we say Alex Jones people, we're not like this is not like a modern iteration, like, oh, those fucking like tinfoil hat no. conspiratards. Abby and I are not coming from that perspective. I mean, in fact, I would consider myself, you know, I'm proud to to say that I believe in some of these true conspiracies. Um, there's there's nothing, there are plenty of conspiracies that have been proven true. Um, there's yeah. th- They're not all equal. That's the problem. Yeah, A lot our- of these weird skeptics, quasi-skeptic, pseudoscientific, like, Righteous people act like all conspiracies are equal. No, and it's really and that Smedley Butler's war is a racket is equal to Sandy Hook. Uh, no kids were there, and they were all crazy. No, actors. and we know if if anyone reads, um, I, I totally forget what it's called. I was just going to say the name of the book, and it's by it, look up on Project Censored. It's basically a whole book about how the term conspiracy theory got injected in the lexicon. It was and, weaponized. Yeah, it was yeah. weaponized by the CIA. I mean, it's look, and that's why we live in a society where we can't talk about the fluoridation of our water because it's considered a batshit crazy conspiracy theory that has been hijacked by these people where it's like, no, it's actually consumer health issue. So it's like these yeah. issues that have been completely hijacked and totally derailed by a conspiracy culture that actually has fundamental roots in truth. I mean, it, and it's really unfortunate because I've been, you know, like look on my Wikipedia page or like people are just like, Oh, Abby, Abby Martin. She's like the truth or fluoride person who says that Israel uses Hitler's methods. It's like these three things that are like, well, I'll, all of those things are rooted in some sort of truth, (laughs) but it's like just been totally, you know, um, like a, just a cartoonish thing that it's like just used to just shut down any questions about any of them. Yeah, and that's a perfect example because the John Birch Society seized on the fluoridation uh, regulations and acted like it was a communist conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem because once that took hold, anytime you mentioned fluoride in the water supply, that's it's like there's this automatic knee-jerk response instead of like, well, what... You know what are the what is the health effects? Where is this fluoride right. coming from? Oh, it's chemical runoff. It's like you never you can never get to that point <laughs> in the dialogue because it's either like oh this is some sort of like my like yeah. brainwashing yeah. drug designed to brainwash the masses or it's oh you're just a kooky conspiracy theorist to like complain about it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's really un- unfortunate. But just going back to Alex Jones yeah. for a second, I think that. I would argue very strongly that at some point um, the, he decided to start injecting divisive language that stifled actual populist movements from being able to like fight the power established in the United States. And he also injected things like racial polarization, seizing on the conservative movement's obsession with racial identity politics, gender politics, um, college campus social justice lawyers. This is another thing I wanted to mention is how absurd it is that conservatives, including Alex Jones and Infowars, think that they're like battling some kind of like 
like PC, oh, yeah. um, like like Nazi PC takeover by going after social justice warriors constantly. It's SJWs, like, don't you realize Rob? that these people exist in a bubble? Yeah, wait, like, uh, perfect you're literally example. fighting windmills. Perfect example. Um, I was in Ber- or no, I was in Greece for the Zeitgeist thing, and this is already a group of people who are like you would assume are like very aware and very open and, you know, removed from this, these kind of trappings. Right. Well, this guy walks up to me with a fucking Mamiya Abu Jamal shirt on and a keffiyeh and a fucking keffiyeh. Okay. So he comes up to me and he's like, why are you a regressive leftist? And this is, this is, this is after the event. And I was just like, excuse me. <laughs> like, holy shit. I was just like, yes, of course. I was like, first of all, the Quilliam Foundation pro-interventionist think tank paid uh, millions of dollars from David Cameron war criminal. And basically what I tried to explain to him um, was, you know, what Sam Harris and these people really say about Palestine and Islam. And he was just like, oh, really? He was like, no, but he doesn't really say that like all Muslims are like all Palestinians. And I was like, actually, he does. And I was like, he calls Palestinians like a death cult. He says that they celebrate death, that they're trained to like kill their children and celebrate it. Like this is like in the intro to one of his fucking books. It's and, and anyway, he he basically had no idea what Sam Harris had even said really about it. But it seemed like he was still holding on to the fact that we still need to criticize religion. Like he was shocked at the fact that I didn't believe in PC stuff. He was like, oh, he was like, you should make that more clear that you aren't one of these like SJWs who like wants everything to be PC. And I'm like, why would I need to assert that? I swear liberally. I'm like, why would I need to like appease new atheists by being like, don't worry, guys, I'm not one of your generic progressives who like safe spaces. I was like, that's actually a total fantasy that doesn't exist. I was like, so you should assume that it doesn't exist until you meet someone. Have you ever met anyone who does that? And then there was another fucking guy. So this, so this guy at the end of our conversation, finally, I thought that I really like, you know, he was like, okay, I really see where you're coming from and you're right. And all this stuff. He was like, but still, still, he was like, why can't you criticize empire five days a week and Islam the other two? And I was like, dude, ah. did you just, I was like, what? <laughs> like what in You're the fuck, so dude? And then this other guy, um, I could tell he was kind of like, like, you know, like very arrogant and stuff. Cause he was like, just wouldn't stop talking and stuff. And then, and then basically we got in this conversation where he was like, but what about feminism now? He was like, feminism used to be like about equal rights. And he was like, now it's just about man hating. And I was like, what are you talking about? I was like, that actually doesn't exist. I was like, that may exist like in a very small circles on some college campuses. I was like, but I am a feminist. I was like, a lot of people I know are feminists and we're, we don't hate men. It's a completely fake, concocted, stupid ass thing created by Breitbart, bro. It's <laughs> it's so bizarre. I, I, I think it's, I mean, I can't explain fully why they're so obsessed with feminism but I mean, I think it just speaks to this idea that it's like you always need an enemy. Their enemy right now is they see this weird they they claim liberalism or leftism is becoming this like um, censorship force that's trying to uh, police all your use of language. They they were really upset when um, the Caitlyn Jenner thing happened because uh, you know they would they started having to refer to Caitlyn Jenner as a her. And that was like 
really, really offensive to them. And I think it all stems from that same thing where if they ever got finger wagged or, you know, sort of condescended to by a liberal person who was like, you know, that's really offensive that you're calling Caitlyn Jenner a him, they, they feel like they should have the right to, you know, say whatever they want. I think that in that simple way, like that's where that mindset mm-hmm. stems from. Mm-hmm. But what they don't understand is that there are plenty of liberals out there. I'd say the overwhelming majority of liberals are much more relaxed and tolerant of missteps or use of language that's like not completely PC. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. But if you're like righteously like refusing to label someone based on the sexual orientation or the gender that they would like to be referred to as like a righteous like protest, then that's that doesn't mean that you're like anti-PC or that you're racist or bigoted to me. It just means you're an asshole. Right. Like if that's important to you to like be like, I don't, you know, I don't know, he, she, like, I don't know what they are. Like if that's important to you to constantly make that point every time you're talking about a transgender person. That just means you're kind of a contrarian asshole. It doesn't really mean, you know, much else to me. And I think that in a weird way, it's like a lot of younger conservatives are contrarian assholes. They don't want to be told how to talk. They don't want to be told what's an appropriate way to speak about race or gender. So they're like completely stuck in this weird gear where anytime they're told anything like that, they completely reject it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where that crossover with Islamophobia comes in. You should actually be tolerant towards these people that are extremely small minority in this country that have done nothing wrong. Even just being told that offends them because it's like, well, they're fucking killing us. Like they say death to America. Like, fuck you for telling me what to think about this death cult. That's how righteous and childish they are. I want to I talk about um, New Atheist because before we actually began recording this, you said something that really struck me. None of us, um, you know, even a lot of like Jewish friends are like secular Jews where they they don't actually like believe in, you know, the tenets of the Torah and all that shit. But I think the most bizarre kind of metamorphosis of, of atheism that I've seen is, is that it's become a lifestyle. And you, you mentioned this and it really struck me because I never thought of it before how nonsensical that that is to actually. Yeah identify yourself like as a proud atheist to go out and like wear t-shirts and just get in people's faces about it. It's like, I I don't, I guess I don't really understand that. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, it's definitely like an identity now Mm. it's become this, this sort of weird identity. Um, And I didn't realize it. I mean, I thought it was a pretty small world. I mean, I still think it is a pretty small world of these people. Most people I know who are atheists or who, or who are even remotely fans of Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins do not act like this. Mm-hmm. Like they're pretty normal people. So it's interesting that there is a world online of people who, from what I've seen, are almost indistinguishable from the alt-right, like mm-hmm. the hardcore Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. Um, the way they talk about Islam is bigoted. It's In a way, it's actually it kind of, and, and I know, and I know that um, I'm gonna probably regret saying this, but in a way, I kind of felt embarrassed, but also like worried a little bit for Sam Harris and what he's cultivating, whether he really fully understands and knows what his fan base is made of. Whenever Sam Harris talks about foreign policy, he is a very ignorant about foreign policy history. It's pretty obvious by the way he talks about it in almost any of his writings. And B, he uses a purposely very narrow 
framework when discussing it in order to act like he's winning the argument. But it's a false framing. Like, for example, when he was asked if he was a neocon in this interview a couple weeks ago, he said, uh, no, he's not. Oh, isn't it sad that people who are like pacifists against the Iraq war are basically, um, by default, they're endorsing a brutal dictator. Oh, and by the way, ISIS, they would have existed anyways if we had invaded or not because of like the barbaric nature of the region and the sectarian hatred towards each other. Really? Like you can say all that shit with a straight face. It's almost, I almost feel like when Robert Kagan talks about the Middle East and some of these neocons do, they're more honest about it. Right. I was trying to explain to someone why Sam Harris is a neocon until I got to the point where I was like, actually, Sam Harris is worse than some of these neocons. Oh, yeah. I mean, from what they're, if you take them at face value, which I don't, I think a lot of the neocons are trying to adapt and rebrand themselves. But if you take them at face value, Sam Harris ranks somewhere, he's closer to people like Michael Ledeen and Richard Pearl and Frank Gaffney than he is to... Max Boot, Jamie Kerchick, and Robert Kagan. Like, they actually look better in terms of their view on Islam than Sam Harris. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a harsh reality. Like, people who are new atheists really need to pay attention to what I'm saying right now. These are neoconservatives. These aren't, oh, I don't like this person because they're right wing. These are literal neoconservative war architects who were behind the Iraq war. That's who those people are. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. just... If you're listening, please look into what I just said. Yeah. Um, and speaking of the Iraq war, let's let's move on to Hillary. Um, you know, before I did this little investigation, I actually had no idea. I mean, I knew she was a discussing war hawk. I knew that she, you know, she was advised by Robert Kagan, of course, the founder of PNAC and just the worst of the worst, right? The worst of the worst, just like the people in Gitmo. Uh, the Iraq war vote, unapologetic support, um, going around the country, unequivocally defending her vote for Iraq, uh, the Libya debacle. I don't want to call something that was so horrific a debacle. It was a complete destabilization and ejection of a government of an entire country, laying the groundwork for ISIS to flourish. Um, what else? So here's the stuff that I didn't know. Um, so that's all all stuff that we knew. We obviously knew that Hillary Clinton was this, you know, this this corrupt criminal um, Warhawk. So here, here's what was really, really crazy though, is that, um, going back to her past, she, I'm sure that you, you probably heard that she was a Goldwater girl that she like campaigned for Barry Goldwater. What I didn't realize was that, you know, I just thought like at the time it was just kind of, you know, she was Republican when she was growing up and Barry Goldwater was just one of those guys in the time. But what was interesting about the timing was that Barry Goldwater's campaign Barry Goldwater's campaign was actually after MLK's I Have a Dream speech, the Freedom Rides and the sit-ins. So, you know, when you hear Hillary Clinton talking about how she was in the People's March and she was like in the the fight for civil rights, it's like, yeah, you were kind of on the wrong side. Because looking at the actual time, historically, you were campaigning for Barry Goldwater after all this shit was going down. Like, that is actually really crazy. So that was in 1964 after the civil rights act was passed. Isn't that amazing? So then here's another really crazy thing. So that, so that was her like college days. She was also the president of the young Republicans club at her college, but you know, you can argue like whatever the Republicans were different back then. So whatever, even though we know that that's not true, that's what she paints it or as. That she switched parties yeah. or something. So then, yeah. then as she goes into, you know, as first lady and how they rose and ascended to power was actually when the Democrats rebranded themselves as the new Democrats. 
Um, and I remember, you know, growing up in a staunchly democratic family, Robbie, I'm sure that you remember mom, um, was for the death penalty and kind of a little bit pro, um, or like anti-immigration, like a little bit slightly the Democrats of that era of the Clinton era were a little bit less like progressive than, you know, than, than I would call myself today. Like I would consider myself more radically progressive now. Mom is too. She's very anti-death penalty, very pro-immigration. But during that time, I do remember that being kind of like a mantra. And lo and behold, we were looking at these Bill Clinton campaign ads from the 90s. One of them begins with, we're not like the old Democrats. We're changing the Democratic Party. We are ending welfare. We are pro-death wow. penalty. And it was him and Gore like like cheering and all this stuff. And I was just like, this is crazy. This is actually what, the, what they were campaigning on. Like very and like not wow. even that coded racism, like saying like the welfare strategy, stuff, total man. Southern strategy, trying to pick up the white Southern vote. And another thing that's really important to realize is that, you know, Hillary Clinton was a strong um, first lady. She like took on this leadership role more than any other first lady really had prior and not only did she take that on, but she also is praised and, and brags about convincing Bill to bomb Yugoslavia, that she was actually like the decider, like to convince him to, to bomb Yugoslavia. So that's one thing. Another thing is just just talking about the massive wave of deregulation that happened during the Clinton administration that really paved the way for the economic crisis, um, not only the Glass-Steagall Act, Telecommunications Act of 1996, which I completely even forgot to mention in the expose. But thinking about, you know, we're talking about the corporate media and this is like what drove me to do what I do. And that was fucking Bill Clinton, dude. Like we had, you know, we went from like 60 corporations controlling the media to now six really yep. points back to that 96 bill of deregulation under the Clinton administration. And then on top of that is the crime bill, three strikes law tough on crime and, that, and, and, and Hillary at the time saying these people are super predators. We need to bring them to heal like dogs. So all of these things, you look back on it, it's astounding that they have um, so much gay and black support because they really did campaign on a lot of anti-black sentiment. Um, and, you know, mm -hmm. Hillary herself didn't even support gay marriage until like three years ago. So, it's just really interesting. And then, of course, on top of all of that is the Clinton Foundation bribery. I mean, I can go into that, but I wanted you to, to see if you had any comment about that before I go into the Clinton Foundation stuff. I mean, my my main comment on Hillary Clinton is that um, it's, you know, it's it's just weird, I think, in general for a first lady to be running for president. I understand that she was in politics for a long time. <laughs> And that she was politically active and stuff, but that's literally going to mean Bill Clinton is back in the right. White House. Like, just think about right. that for a second. How weird. weird would that be for us to be okay with electing a like electing a president yeah, like the where the same guy is going to be in the yeah. fucking White House yeah. again? Like, that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't any way you slice it. But it's that her shouldn't turn, even be legal. Rob. Should not be legal. I don't care if if she's the one running for president. I mean, we've all seen House of Cards. We know married couples. Fucking, it doesn't, it, a lot of the times they make decisions together. It's like, it doesn't matter who, right. which one is president, really. Right. I'm sorry. And Bill Clinton, um, what's wrong with him? I mean, in f his physical health, like he looks like he's on death's door. Right. I don't understand what's going on. There was a video um, of him from like a few weeks ago. Oh, and uh, another thing uh, of him, like looking like he was chewing on his own tongue, like an 85 year old dying man in a wheelchair. It was really, really weird. 
Did you see oh, that video? Oh, he looks really bad. It was like a video of him where it was um, Gabby Gifford was like trying to talk. Yeah. You know how she yeah, has yeah, brain yeah. damage? And uh, he was behind her and he was he looked like he was having a stroke yeah. behind her. It was really, really yeah, yeah, disturbing, yeah. actually. Well, he looks like but he has then, a lot like, of a couple bl- weeks after that, vessels in his face. Well, that too. But I mean, a couple <laughs> weeks after that, he's been... The Hillary campaign campaign is weird as fuck. And Bill Clinton, just one example of that is Bill Clinton is literally going out on the campaign trail saying that the last eight years have been a disaster in this country. But then at the same time, Hillary's praising Obama in the debates and stuff. It's like, so what is their, where's their messaging right, coming right, from? Right. What does Hillary really think? Does she, is she really more along the lines of these neocons who thought that Obama totally like fucked up in the second term of his presidency? Right. It's really, it's really confusing. The whole thing, my, I guess my thing is, yes, she's obviously going to be terrible if she wins. It's a huge hawk. But it's like, what does she really even think? Like, I don't even know. I still feel like she's so robotic. Oh, my and God. The yeah. message is so contradictory. I, it's, it's weirder than Trump. Like, oh, you could yeah. say Trump is contradictory and his messaging is all over the map. But what is Hillary's real opinion well, on anything? Well, especially when you look at no how idea. she campaigns on the anti-Trump, like th- that's all she has going for her. The women vote, she's totally lost. Women hate her. Women hate Trump too, but they really don't like her. Um, I think she's gotten like, I don't know, like a, a shockingly low number of, of the demographic of voters under the age of like 35 who are women, which is sad because that's really what she's pandering to. When you have Madeleine Albright going over there saying women are going to go to hell unless they vote for Hillary, it's really desperate there. But it's true. I mean, she's such a chameleon. She's campaigning as her as an anti-Trump candidate now when just literally three years ago she was anti-gay marriage. Tack on a couple of years prior to that and she was talking about building a wall just like Trump. Um, you look at the Obama presidency, you know, deporter in chief. He's deported more people than any other administration. And it's not progressive or feminist to be bombing the fuck out of everyone around the world. And Hillary has proven time and again that she will actually Abby, go over is. Obama's head and she's proven that in every instance it's like we think Obama's bad and a war criminal dude she is going to be a million times worse this funny thing you just said about how she thinks it's feminist to go bombing people around the world the crazy craziest thing is there are people who actually make that argument all over the internet mean? and twitter there's people who call I just read an article talking about how this beautiful job, the alternative left, they call it the alternative left, people who are pro-Syrian intervention oh have done, God. how many feminists and queers and LGBT supporters are are behind the inter- intervention in Robbie, Syria. Robbie, why are you aggressive leftists? Why don't you want to free the feminists and gay people in Syria? You're super regressive. So fu- Oh, just really a side note. Yeah. I, we haven't, I, we talk about Syria way too much on the show, but I, I just wanted to give two <laughs> updates. Uh, remember Palmyra, the ruins um, that uh, they said ISIS destroyed yeah. and bombed all of them down, which they did not. They bombed a small part of them. Yes, they destroyed some ancient, um, you know, architecture, but the media here heavily exaggerated and even lied with satellite imagery showing us only Dang. one of the things they bombed and not showing us how the rest of it was completely intact. Dang. Which is, which they never really retracted. You know, it's like nobody cares. But so what happened was um, RT, some Russian state-funded media, did drone photography of Palmyra showing it after it had been taken back by Assad's army, the Syrian army. 
Um, the U.S. State Department was asked in a press conference why they didn't announce that as like an ISIS defeat. This ancient city that's considered one of the wonders of the world was taken over by ISIS, and now it's been taken back to its original state. State Department actually said that they were not happy about it. Like they and and the guy tried to basically pull something from the State Department spokesperson about it, and he refused to even like acknowledge that it was like a good thing. Because right, right, right. I mean, that which actually kind of sheds some light on the weird, the weirdness, and how it's not a conspiracy theory to suggest that the U.S. State Department would rather have ISIS there than Assad. Yeah. yeah. At least right now, of course, because it gives them an excuse to fucking do shit there. Of course, we didn't. We didn't go for. We didn't buy the excuse. Oh, Assad using chemical weapons. Let's invade the country. Nobody right. bought that. Right. Only idiots and propagandists did. The normal people in this country didn't buy it. And Obama, at least I think, was perceptive enough to know that. I mean, I'd like to think he was. Oh, yeah, Maybe no, I'm I mean, wrong, no, of but. course. I mean, it's it's so crystal clear that <laughs> they want, that they that they really <laughs> don't care about ISIS being in Syria. And, and that's why it's so funny. And this is what I really like when Trump keeps saying, um, dude, you have to watch Super Deluxe. It's the funniest. I know that you've probably watched it. It's the one that I posted about the Vic John Burger Kasich. stuff. Yeah, it's so good. Vic Burger's a brilliant, dude, brilliant man. It's so good. There's this one, and I love how every time I hear Trump speak, I picture the air horn because <laughs> it's just so. Yeah, <laughs> me too. And then like how it's like reverb, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, it's like a, there's. A do screen. you hear the one where he did the song of the air horn playing <laughs> yeah. the uh, dun 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 dun? There's this really, the there's Bush this really, one. really good um, clip of like his wife. Wait, first, okay, first, I really like how Trump is always like, we can't fight ISIS and fight Assad. He's like, it makes no sense. If we want to fight ISIS, we have to work with Assad. Like, it's just like very simple. And it's like, yeah, exactly. What the fuck? But there's yeah, this- if our real motivation, yeah. that's the thing. It's like, he, he he's taking advantage. The neocons don't realize, like, when they throw out shit, there are other people out there who can seize on right. it and take it at face and value they, and spin it and, and use it against them, dude. That, and why do they think that Trump is getting so much support? It's like, yes, he has... There's a million reasons that that his base is growing. A lot of them are bad. But I mean, you know, I think that that's one of the reasons is that people are saying this is complete bullshit. At least this guy is calling out the hypocrisies about foreign policy. It sounds logical. Right. It sounds logical because it's like, why would we fight a regime who's fighting against ISIS? Right. And when you know know who would take over, it's like, we literally just saw this happen in Libya. Do you want the exact same thing to happen in Syria? Why? We haven't destabilized. Yeah, we're literally doing it again. And the thing is, all the Republicans say that ISIS was created because Obama pulled out of Iraq too soon. So who's going to fill the void in Syria? Oh my God, Robbie, that's what Hillary said. There's this amazing clip um, of Hillary at the Benghazi hearing saying, this is what happens. So, so, you know, normally you would think after being embroiled in, in such a crazy scandal where you're subpoenaed and you're fucking testifying for 10 hours in front of the world and you're running for president and, you know, all these people died under your watch and you're running this like secret weapons funneling extremist whatever training base in Benghazi, you would think you would have a little bit of introspection to be like, you know what? That was bad. That was a bad idea. Here's what was wrong. Instead, it was the reverse. She she was asked like, you know, like what lessons did you glean or whatever? And she was like, well, this is what happens when Americans leave. This is what happens when American presence isn't there. It's like, wait, what? That so so you're advocating for more American presence. 
you're not actually saying that anything that we did was bad. You're saying that we should have been there more. And then, and that's really who she is. You look at every single thing, the blood soaked troop surge in 2008 at Robert Gates said that she was at the forefront pushing for that shit. Iraq war tried to keep troops there past everything. Drone program co-drafted it with Obama, Syria, doubling down on the fucking no fly zone still I, and and I didn't even really realize until Mike was explaining what a no fly zone actually would mean. It would mean bombing anti-aircraft like missile um, stations, like completely devastating the Syrian state where you would actually be like, like total act of war. Like I thought it was just like you didn't, but I thought it was like you didn't allow planes to fly, but you are actually bombing the ability for planes to fly. Like you are actually starting war. And that's what Hillary Clinton wants. And she went over Obama's head time and again. And even on the debates was still saying that. I mean, that's fucking nuts. It is nuts. And what's also <laughs> nuts, I mean, this is crazy. We've talked about this before, but what's also nuts is that Robert Kagan said that he was comfortable, more comfortable with Hillary's foreign policy than Obama's as soon as she left oh, yeah. the position of Secretary Done. of State. This is this is the person that hired yeah, tell, him to be in the who, State Department. Remind people how scary this guy is. Okay, Robert Kagan is the co-founder of the Project for the New American Century, the, the considered the most influential think tank that was the blueprint for Bush's foreign policy. The blueprints for Iraq, for Afghanistan, the war on terror, pretty much all that shit. He was picked by Hillary Clinton to be on a thing she created in the State Department called the Foreign Policy Advisory Board. She picked Robert Kagan and Strobe Talbot, who is considered one of the biggest like cold warrior Democrats, um, who is largely largely responsible for all of the moves that have led up to the situation that's now happening in Ukraine. She brought these people into the State Department to advise her. And apparently when the Syria chemical weapons thing happened, it was her foreign policy advisory board and her team of people, basically, like her wing of loyal followers within the in the White House and in the government that were trying to convince Obama uh, that we need to do this, that once Assad crosses this red line, um, that we need to go in and, and use military force. Uh, and apparently, according to her own autobiography that she wrote um, when she got out of office, that it was Obama was the only thing standing in the way, that like it got to the final like sign-off like stage, like all the way. And I mean, that actually sounds realistic because you and I, when we were watching it, we're like, holy shit, how's this thing going to turn around right. now? You know, it it was in my lifetime, the only time we ever saw a war get that close to happening and then just reverse, but then slowly incrementally mm-hmm. creep in mm-hmm. in another way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's, we can't say that the war didn't happen because it's happening. It's just creep. It's just creep. Um, but this was like something happened Oh, Hillary really wanted to go in. If it was Hillary's decision, if she was president, by her own admission, we would have had a full-scale ground assault on Syria. Yeah, and, and yeah, and remember how there all the way remember, back in 2013. Yeah, because remember how it came out later, like when we finally started approving the weapons to the people there, to the extremists and shit. Remember when when it came out like, okay, well, we've already been doing this, but it was like these sects within the establishment. It was like the CIA was like doing it covertly years before, right? 
So when we finally got like the congressional approval and it was like this big thing, like, okay, Carrie finally got it. Now we're going to send these weapons. It's like, well, this has already been happening for a long ass time. Hillary was working with the CIA with this group called like the Friends of Syria right from the get go to hijack the Arab Spring and kind of try to force it into Syria. When really the problem was that there was never enough um, opposition to have a legitimate like internal organic regime change from the people there. So it was like the U S was trying to force this to happen. Hillary was there at the very beginning, um, pushing all these weapons in with the CIA. So that's another thing she did. I mean, you know, aside from the no fly zone, I mean, she was, she was there from the get go. And then don't even get me started on Iran because that, you know, catastrophic is not, is putting it lightly if we were to talk about a potential war with Iran, um, people have no idea the capabilities and capacity of the Iranian military. Um, and, you know, all the fear mongering we've heard about Iran. And then I want to get into Donald Trump in a second because his foreign policy speech touches upon it. But Hillary has spent the entire time in office paving a way for war with Iran. Even back before she was Secretary of State, there's an amazing clip, and everyone check out the, the expose we did on her because we show it. But Mike Ravel is attacks her at the, the debate and she has this maniacal insane laugh where she's just like a sadistic crazy person laughing at him when he's talking about how she voted for this thing that could take us to war with Iran but what she did was vote to change the Iranian military to, to a terrorist organization oh yeah. yes yeah which yeah. would be like a total blueprint and like revolutionary guard war democrats voted against that because it's totally insane and I mean, yeah, she has been on that. camera saying she wants to obliterate Iran. I mean, that's like a casual admission that you will commit genocide. The word obliterate. Um, and I mean, at the APAC rally, she was just like gleefully talking about how much she wants to fuck up Iran. I mean, she just, she's the scariest. And then the Iran nuclear deal. I mean, she went over Obama's head and, and even tried, you know, above and beyond going above to try to appease and capitulate to Israel and and try to destroy that deal and the deal was whatever it was like great we're you know lifting the sanctions and and iran will stop whatever the nuclear enrichment it's like great everyone wins it's like they don't have to do that they have every right to a build nuclear energy and b build a nuclear fucking bomb israel has a nuclear bomb they have every right to have a nuclear bomb but if you're going to be the world's police and you know, da 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 da. Then, then whatever you got your way, but that wasn't good enough for her. She wanted to go further, and she will go further. She's promised that time and again, and that should scare the shit out of everyone. People are scared of North Korea. No, they should be scared of going to war with Iran because that's going to trigger. I mean, everything in that region is going to be. That's the linchpin right there. A lot of people say that's why, like, we're even dealing with Syria is to just get like one inch closer to. Iran, you know, to like shut out all the proxy players and hone in on the real prize. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just too scary to think about. I it's one of those potentialities I have not really thought about too much. Um, and it's one of those. I was just going to say it's one of those things that even neocons backed off on. They yeah. back. They used to talk about um, like in like attacking Iran like yeah, pretty yeah, yeah. aggressively for a while and they kind of backed off and I don't know if it's because some of them you know I don't know I mean the Iranian deal might have had something to do with it but then again we also saw the emergency committee for Israel that donated did you know this Abby I don't know if hmm. I told you this already I found it out while 
uh, uh, working on a very heavy Jenny three, which I wanted to mention before we signed off, but like Tom Cotton, before he wrote that Iranian uh, anti-Iranian deal letter that all the Congress. Oh my God. Uh, oh yeah. He, that, was a, on, that was a Kagan thing, right? That was like a FPI letter. Well, no, it was actually, I mean, it, I'm sure he had something to do with it too, but not officially, but it did, it was um, uh, right before he wrote the letter, uh, he was donated. Uh, one of his super PACs got like a $2 million donation from the Emergency Committee for Israel, which Bill Crystal sits on the board of. So basically, he was bribed. You know, he was paid <laughs> millions of dollars to write, to be like the face of a neocon rebellion against wow. the Iranian deal. Wow. I mean, because that's really what it was. Yeah. The reason they didn't come out and do it is because at that point, they knew they wouldn't be taken seriously. It's smart, actually. That's and another example of how smart they are. They but even the that letter was rejected, I think, by mm -hmm, most people. Mm -hmm. But it still sent shockwaves throughout DC, and that's also the same time Netanyahu came in. So it was all coordinated. It just seemed like um, that was the last time I really plugged into sort of the Iranian thing. And uh, but yeah, I just. I mean, I I think that there's definitely people out there who still want to actually invade. Yeah. And like, that's how crazy it you is. You know, you're talking about how, you know, it's great that people are talking about Trump and stuff now, but like, where was everyone? You know, it's been like, there's just been this neutering of the entire anti-war left under Obama. And and Hillary, you know, what's scary about her, and this is why I'm I'm actually more scared of her than anyone, is because she's going to be completely insidious has this chameleon projection where it's like you have no idea what the hell she really is thinking. She's going to say whatever she can to pander to everyone. Did you hear her pander to black people by saying she carries hot sauce in her purse? I mean, this is who Hillary is. Shocking. I mean, it's insane. And she's going to say whatever she can. She's going to be doing all this shady shit behind the scenes. And I wanted to just tell people in case they don't know who funds the Clinton Foundation? The Clinton Foundation is kind of like, you know, you hear about the Clinton Foundation as like this philanthropy thing that like helps poverty and da, 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 like the Gates Foundation. It's like whatever. They're doing good work, right? But, you know, you really just have to look at who funds the foundation because who it is is the worst criminal corporations in the fucking world and also police state theocratic monarchies. It's, it's extremely shocking. I mean, I'm not even exaggerating. I'm not just saying, oh, like a few of them are. Everyone and everyone who donates the most money too. $10 million Saudi Arabia, $10 million Victor Pinchuk. He's an Ukrainian oligarch who was lobbying tens of millions of dollars to another Clinton global initiative. Meanwhile, while Hillary Clinton was destabilizing Ukraine. I mean, these are the kind of things that were going on. It's like super plain as day. Um, one to five million dollars are all the Gulf state monarchies. Oman, UAE, Qatar, Kuwait, ExxonMobil, Dow Chemical, Walmart. She's on the board of directors early in the 90s. Coca-Cola, Pfizer, Barclays, Goldman Sachs, Boeing. And then when you go to like, you know, millions of dollars and, and mind you, like they don't even have to specify who donates or how much on the website or for what. So this is like only what they state as if they're proud of this. Monsanto, Chevron, General Electric, Bank of America, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, UBS, Bank of California, Fox's News Corp, which should which should actually really be interesting to people that she has all these media conglomerates and also like conservative media conglomerates behind her. It's completely a quid pro quo, insane, openly corrupt 
criminal relationship with all these corporations. And it's not even that they donate to her. It's that you actually trace the arms deals. You trace the donation from Boeing, which was $90,000, the Clinton Foundation, right after she secured this giant billions dollar arm contract with Russia for them as Secretary of State. All of these things are so blatantly obvious and corrupt, but it was so weird because during our investigation, we could we could barely find anything about the Clinton Foundation that wasn't initiated by Breitbart or like was like, Hillary's a witch. And like, look at the, it's just like super right-wing, weird, misogynist attacks. And it's like really weird how no one has just come at this from a very just cut and dry perspective. Like this person is a total criminal and here's why. So it, I don't know if it's because people have been like apologizing for her, like just thought that any criticism of the Clinton Foundation was like right-wing or whatever. But I mean, it's it's very shocking when you look into it. Well, no, it reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, how it's like when Alex Jones and InfoWars attaches themselves to a an actual important subject, yeah. it automatically, it's like the credibility of that subject goes starts going down. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with a lot of the attacks on Hillary. Like, I don't know if we've had this discussion actually on the podcast. I know I've had it with you privately mm-hmm. a couple of times, just t- how it's like when you're sort of in the thick of it and you're behind the fog of partisanship, and, and you know, you and I would admit that we were at periods of time in our lives, like unable to see around some of that yeah, when we yeah, were younger. Yeah. Um, and when I was, you know, you know, our parents were Democrats during Clinton. I kind of just, you know, I bought into a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff. And even as I got older, I remember hearing about a lot of the Clinton conspiracies, the MENA Arkansas, um, you know, the drug trafficking stuff, like Clinton's involvement with the Iran-Contra and things like that, and just thinking it was probably made up, or that like a lot of the Jennifer Flower, Jennifer Flowers stuff, or even all the accusations of rape were completely made up. Um, but when you look into it now, you know, and the re- and I guess why the reason I'm saying that is because when you looked into it then, it was obvious that it was all coming from right wing media attacks, um, you know, or sources, right wing sources. But that didn't mean that it wasn't true because when you look at a lot of that stuff now, a lot of it's very credible. Um, you know, certain things I'm sure were like generated by the right wing media or were piled on. But um, when you it's hard to see it's it's like until you're outside of that partisan sphere, mm-hmm. you, it's hard mm-hmm. to see. And I think a lot right. of Democrats who are Hillary supporters, they've only seen it through that lens. They're like, oh, well, Breitbart's, you know, right. fucking right wing outlet. Right. So that's that has to be bullshit or this and this. Um that's why I think bringing up the fact that Hillary Clinton has a lot of neocon mm-hmm, support mm-hmm, is a really mm-hmm, important mm-hmm. and effective way of cutting through because um, there's no way to like deny the fact that Robert Kagan has endorsed her. And it's like, right. you know, been sort of trying to shift people. I mean, even Jamie Kirchick kind oh of endorsed Oh my God, it's so pathetic. A couple he, weeks ago. He wrote this op-ed about how disgusted that, right? he is about Trump. It's like, wow, dude, really? You're disgusted about when, since when do you care about killing Muslims? Oh, you just care that Trump is taking it a little bit too far with the bellicose rhetoric, huh? Because it seems yeah, like they, you didn't all give these a, neocons. Holy hell! No, and um, you know, Mark Ames and Max Munthal have referred to like the foreign policy initiative as as sort of like a neocon 2.0 update. I think what we're seeing with people like Jamie Kirchick and this project for the anti-Trump century letter and the Robert Kagan mm-hmm. letter, all talk and they're all talking about Islamophobia. Max Boot. Yeah, talking about yeah, Islamophobia yeah. and how Trump is courting it. That's an that is what I would describe as a neocon 3.0 update. Right. It's a new right. update. Right. Eight years have right. passed. 
It's just, like an eight-year cycle. Yep. They need it. It's this is their 3.0 update, which is kind of surprising that they're actually going more to the left of Sam Harris and Bill Maher. <laughs> I never expected Neil Combs to take that because they uh, position, know they need but they to. have. It's like they're so exactly they're getting ahead of the brand. curve. Oh my! They God, know it's that. Amazing. I think they even know that people like yep. Sam Harris are holding on to like a weird <clears throat> bubble of like racist racism on the left. Yeah. Or the so-called left. I mean, most of them are virtually indistinguishable from like alt-right uh, bigots. I right. mean, so you know, to call them the left is very generous. Um, but no, I mean, and Trump versus Hillary does seem to be inevitable now. Um, I don't know. Do you want to? Yeah, get yeah, into yeah. That let's quickly? first Just, uh, first let's explain the delegate thing because it's until this election cycle. I never really understood, you know, and here I am with a poli sci major and taking civics in college. No clue. No <laughs> clue how our system works at all. Um, so back in 1984, because Carter got like crushed or something happened where they wanted to basically initiate the superdelegate process to maintain. I thought it was McGovern. McGovern. I thought, Sorry, the, the, McGovern. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, following Carter or something like that. Um, so McGovern got crushed and they wanted to create the superdelegate system so they can, you know, maintain their party insiders and not be usurped by some sort of grassroots candidate. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the DNC chair, admitted this. Howard Dean, superdelegate, admitted this. Um, many people have unabashedly just said this. Like, yeah, of course, it's so like some crazy person can't just come in like a Trump and take over the whole process. That's fucking crazy. Okay, Everything aside, that's insane. Um, that that's like super undemocratic and just an inversion. And you're of talking everything. about just the super just the super, and because- this is just the DNC. People are confused at all the delegate counts. Yeah. Only the DNC has done this. This is what's so funny. Some- it's like they've even been more corrupted than the RNC. I know that the RNC has somehow like maintained like a principle of demo, like democratic principles, yeah. like more than the, the DNC <laughs> so, in this regard. So at it's first true. it was only 20% and it was only congressmen or like former governors or da da da, like people who have been in the system, democratic insiders that you can count on. But it was originally 20% and it was originally people who were politicians. Fast forward to today and now it's um, 30%. So really, you know, when Hillary goes into before months before we even cast our votes already with 500 superdelegates pledge, which is one third of all that you need to win. And then every time you see the delegate count on TV, it's already like conditioning you to be like, well, Hillary's just going to be it. You know, there's all these like psychological conditionings and like agitation propaganda with the delegate thing that has already made it like she already is going to win. It's like already been like a predetermined thing from the beginning. So all on top of that, absolutely, and it's been so confusing. So you know the well, five break that down. Break yeah. that down a little bit more because yeah, because well, I mean, do you mind if I explain what you just yeah, said? Yeah, yeah, go the, for it. The the psychological yeah, count. Yeah, yeah. So when they're totaling the Bernie versus Hillary right. delegate counts, they're not implicitly explaining to you that they're including in that tally the super delegates, which are completely unbound by any of the mm-hmm. electoral results. They can choose whoever they want. Right. So in in the 2008 election, they did the same thing, but sort of in the last uh, like stages of the election, super delegates all started to move to Obama because they saw him as the inevitable win. Mm-hmm. But they shouldn't be tallying together super delegates because they have no they don't it doesn't matter what they're thinking now, really. 
Right. It only matters what they think in the end because they can choose whenever they want. So it's a psychological trick to show that, of course, all these superdelegate establishment people, lobbyists and and all these like establishment people are going to be pledging for Hillary now. So why include that in the actual like vote delegate total? Totally. The actual literal delegates are based on the voting results. That should be the only total they're showing. Exactly. But they're not. Exactly. And it's making people think that Bernie doesn't have a chance. Right. It helps it helps push Hillary's momentum. Yeah, exactly. And people have been like, whatever, he's it's like mathematically impossible anyway now. And it's like that may be true, but like you you will never know what would have happened if it already yeah. wasn't rigged and set up that way from the get-go. And it's like that's my point. And you yeah. know, and, and and just to hammer this home, I know that you just mentioned lobbyists, but this is a really important point that I didn't even know until I was researching this episode because I didn't really pay attention to the delegate thing because I think I tuned out the 2008 election completely and the 2004 election was about, you know, anyone but Bush. So I didn't even really was paying attention then either. And of course, the 2000 election was decided by the Supreme Court, so it didn't matter. But um, but these people actually are corporate lobbyists, aside from the sitting members of Congress, aside from former governors and, and, and mayors and stuff, corporate lobbyists that have zero political experience, everything from private prisons to healthcare to banking. I mean, the, uh, I don't even understand how this is legal. Like, I don't understand a lot of things are legal, but I mean, th- this should outrage everyone and demand an end to this entire process because it makes zero fucking sense that there are corporate lobbyists representing thousands of people's votes and voices to elect our president. Does that make any sense at all? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make sense. And it's funny how it's like, I think that the internet helps create internet and social media help create more of an awareness Mm -hmm. that this is going on. I think, I mean, in a, in a little bit of like, I just noticed more people making light of this. So like when you watch CNN now, like they'll bring that up about sometimes, corporate lobbyists, like, not about corporate oh, yeah, lobbyists yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. but about how the superdelegate oh, right, process right, right, sort right, of right. undermines right. democratic principles. Right. Almost like they'll bring it into play in the discussion, sort of like to have it knocked down and like brush to the side. But I just think it's funny that it's like even they, even the mainstream media, has to acknowledge some of that stuff now because. That, you know, if they don't, then it'll look like they're more complicit. I almost feel like they do that on purpose to be like, well, isn't this kind of like make it rigged? And then they'll have someone like debunk that, you know? Um, I don't know if that made oh, yeah, any like sense. Joe but. Scarborough, how he went off on a rant. He was like, this is so rigged. And it's like, yeah, it is rigged. Your congressman, your fucking co-host is Brzezinski's daughter. Chris Matthews works for the Clinton Foundation. Yeah, it's super rigged, yeah. bro. Stop acting like you're yeah. like sympathizing with us. Like, oh, man. You guys should be out in the streets with pitchforks. Yeah, that's really funny. Hannity, too, is kind of playing that Um, card. Well, let's talk about Trump because, you know, as opposed to the Democrats, which have which kind of predicted a Trump like character usurping the whole process. So they set up the superdelegate system. The Republicans, on the other hand, didn't. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's so funny to me that we have Donald Trump, who is a reality star business mogul like but also just a complete facade and shell of himself who's just like you know a kind of a failed businessman but just sells his name for all these brands and stuff it's like it actually is the perfect yeah it's like that it is the perfect person to represent america because really in Mm -hmm. true idiocracy form i mean that is what we are we're like a reality show um empire 
corporatocracy. So it's like, great. Trump Smoke is the mirrors. perfect uh, candidate. <laughs> we were just in Vegas. Yeah, before our you biggest began. export besides web, besides death and destruction is like actual magic, like Hollywood <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. like fantasy. And really quickly, like, we were in Vegas and Trump Tower was down the street. And what we found out was that all the casino billionaires on the strip pushed him out. He's the only cas- um, hotel without a casino and a gaming license. And the whole hotel is just like a facade. It's like there's nothing in it. There's no restaurant. There's no bar. It was just like two people milling around. Um, it was very Weird. strange, but it kind of just reminded like me of like- Like he has made enemies in Vegas yeah. or something? Yeah, is that funny? But what were you just going to say? Oh, um, just, uh, I mean, well, let's talk a little bit about um, like where, like just where Trump is now and how now it almost seems like he, he it, it, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is- Trump before um, they didn't think he was going to have enough delegates to get the nomination, uh, and that they were all talking about a broker convention, and that somehow Ted Cruz was going to get it on the second ballot, or that was their plan. But now it looks like he might, or that he probably will hit the the minimum requirement of uh, twelve thirty seven delegates. Right. Um, she has 994 delegates right now. Yeah, and there's another uh, big sweep of like Indiana and all those other states that he's obviously going to win. I mean, Ted Cruz yeah. is a total joke, and Kasich is a, just a boring ass dude that no one likes. It's like, yeah, and I almost feel like obviously like Cruz has like pl- like plumped up delegate count because like a lot of delegates decided to like still support. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. it was a little bit rigged in the sense that like. They were trying to jumping on the stop Trump bus, mm-hmm. you know, and giving him delegates, especially Kasich, who has like 153. Like, that's an inflated count, right. also. Because he hasn't won um, anything other than Ohio. Yeah. So, with even with those inflated counts, Trump is almost at 1237, you know, is under 300 delegates away. Uh, California, if he wins, which he will, can you imagine Cruz winning no. California? That's 172 winner take all state. Of it's delegates. insane. New Jersey, fifty-one. He probably will win New yeah, Jersey, yeah, because of Christie, you know, yeah. which it's kind of seems like that might be his running mate or something. Uh, Washington, forty-four. Indiana, fifty-seven delegates. These are all states that are coming up. Um, if he wins all those, he already hits the twelve thirty-seven, and that's like only one third of all the states that are still coming up. So. I don't know what the convention's going to be like now, but I was almost excited that it was that they were going to try to do a brokered convention and push oh, him I out know. as the nominee. But I don't now. It almost seems like they can't do yeah, that. It's like, I don't what know. Leg do what they do have to stand on? Um, well, it's really interesting. I f- I felt like until he won those five states this Tuesday, I really thought that they were going to go through the broker convention because that's what they were all Me setting too. up. Absolutely. And I thought, look, they'd rather risk totally shredding the base of the party. They don't give a fuck about the voters. They would no, rather risk everything earth. It was scorched, scorched earth, earth to just maintain their stranglehold and not allow even the chance of something like Trump. But I, I mean, how could they possibly get around it now unless they still, even with the delegates are still going to go through and try to broker it. I mean, it's, it seems totally insane, but what's even more crazy is that they have no one else Everyone hates, loathes Ted Cruz. Even his like college roommate, like has a blog where he's just like, I know. He's just like everyone writes me every day asking why I didn't smother him with a pillow. He's the most loathed, hated asshole in the world. Everyone in government hates him. They can't work with him. He looks like, um, he looks like he just like tortures puppies. I mean, he is the creepiest, he looks like most disgusting person. 
It's like, that's the alternative. Like that's who you actually were like good long-term planning guys. I mean, what do they think was going to happen? You know what they thought? They thought Rubio. They were just like, you know what? We're just going to throw our weight behind Rubio and he's just going to be it. And it's like, no, because you guys are screwed. Well, that's what, um, that's what Daniel Wright used an analogy uh, when, when we, on the last podcast about how Marco Rubio was like, it was like, it was the dog brand of dog food that had the best packaging yep. is like the most expensive, best ingredients, yep. but like the dog won't eat yep. it. It's yep. like that old dilemma. And that's, they, they didn't, they realized that way too late they in the game. Way they just too assumed. Late. Way too yeah, late. Yeah. It's like, they just assumed something about, at, oh my God, I mean, look maybe Ted Cruz's stomach. I'm looking at him right now. He's wearing mom jeans <laughs> up to his boobs and a, what and a f- blazer that's just buttoned once over his gut. Oh, he's such a disgusting, disgusting person. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think that the the Republicans are happy with him. But I think that maybe they think they can manipulate him more. Like he's less experienced, yeah. and he might take on a team of people who uh, who somehow will be able to, you know, like they'll be able to get some of their agendas through. Maybe um, it's kind of it's crazy too to think that that Rand Paul and Ron Paul sort of opened the door for him. Um, and and gave him a lot of credibility by sort of like inviting him in and sort of promoting him as this like new Tea Party guy. Uh, and look at him now. Yeah, and and, and it's also know? like so gross because his whole like remember what he did? He went and derailed the whole floor, shut down the government. Government shutdown. And red doctors. There were a Seuss. lot of Republicans who were did not like that. No, because he was he was just like this newbie. Johnny come lately, he's out there shutting down the government, reading Dr. Seuss, being a complete idiot over what, Obamacare? It was just like such a joke, dude. I almost feel like he is, you know, we talk about these days at Super PACs and um, Citizens United and like the Koch brothers are completely like just injecting so much money and all these groups are just injecting so much money into the dialogue now. He is like a trial balloon, experimental, like avatar for a lot of that rhetoric, like anti-big government. Like, oh, let's see if like we can get like a Congress or a senator to shut down the government and see if like people go along with that. Like all these different things, just like trying to throw different like things against the wall to see what sticks. And yeah, that was a really weird one that he was able to do. And do you remember that that response uh, where it was like, Oh, the government shut down. Like they're not letting people go to the World War II memorials, yeah, and like insane. that became like a weird viral conservative story. That's just weird. I don't even know what to think about that. Yeah, but. that was really dumb. Um, but yeah, Trump's foreign policy uh, speech. You watched it. I just watched people reacting to it on Twitter. Um, what did he say? I mean, um, what was his so it was general? So confusing. I mean, Trump. That's that's the problem that I have with Trump. Is like. He's so unpredictable and he's he's so inexperienced politically. Yes, he's like strong armed businessman and stuff and probably will be a lot better on, you know, Russia and China and stuff like that. But on the other hand, I feel like he could easily swayed by like foreign policy advisors in the in a bad way because he's inexperienced. So it's like we don't know where he's gonna go. Um, the Israel stuff is really bad where he's, you know, first he was like, whatever, I'm gonna remain impartial, but then he wasn't very impartial at APAC when he was saying all that stuff about Israel and how they're such great friends and how he's going to be the biggest supporter of Israel, blah, blah, blah. We haven't even talked about yeah. that since. But, but then, we, but then, wasn't it funny how they said there was going to be a walkout and nobody walked yeah. out? <laughs> yeah. No, they loved it. I mean, he said he hit all the right notes. 
Um, but yeah. but here's what's confusing is so now he's you know this is like his big moment where he's going to put forward his foreign policy agenda because in every debate he doesn't know anything about foreign policy so he's just like don't worry I got this I'm going to kill ISIS I got the best people and <laughs> make the best deals I'm going to get rid of ISIS I'm not going to tell you how I'm just going to do it so this is where like all waiting with bated breath like what is he going to say how is he going to kill ISIS what is he going to do so still didn't really have a plan for the ISIS thing but he did he kind of had a mix of like non-interventionism with neoconservatism. So it was like a little bit like mix of bellicose rhetoric about Iran and North Korea, but then totally backed off like Ron Paul style with all the interventions and destabilizations and regime change efforts under Obama, Bush, um, etc. So it was very interesting. It was like he was totally taking a step back saying everything's been destroyed. We can't be the world's policeman and go in and just like like inject democracies with countries that don't want it. But then on the other hand, he was like, we've been really bad when it comes to our true enemies, North Korea and Iran. So, you know, it's like he's trying to cater to many different sides and, and it's still not clear where he's going to go with it. At the very least, we know that he's coordinating with some sort of part of the bourgeoisie who doesn't want to be enemies with Russia and China. They do want to open markets with them. They see that as bad politics. They see it as bad economics. And he's obviously part of that sector of the capitalist class yeah. that, that wants that. And that's that's a good thing. <laughs> like, it's a good thing to not have someone up there calling Putin Hitler, you know, like Hillary has. Yeah, it is, yeah. Like, the, these but are the, nuclear states I, that are, like, very dangerous and a lot of things could be triggered. So it was, like, very interesting to hear him, um, you know, just go back and forth between those points. Yeah. Um, and, he, yeah, his stuff that he's been saying about Russia and NATO is, like, really shocking to a lot of people especially on the neocon side of things. Um, they're really freaking out about that. Uh, and I don't know whether people should take it seriously or not, but um, yeah, the, the fact that he's still talking about Iran and, and North Korea as if those are like the real threats, it almost seems like, yeah, he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's, that's the carrot on the stick approach. Those are like two very challenging neoconservative goals. Like, you know, like, like like main boss of the video game kind of th stuff, uh, and so he and I think he probably is smart enough to know that and know that there's people on the right who are like still concerned about that, but then like erasing and like basically just saying all this other stuff that we've been doing is totally, um, you know, bad and is like fucking us over even more, uh, is is coming from like a Pat Buchanan sort of more old school right wing what neocons would call an isolationist foreign policy approach that is sort of taking you know that more like self-interested like the opposite of liberal interventionism like why can't we you know stay here work on our own stuff and do you know and just not worry about you know let them like kill each other like like trump has said things like you know let them kill each other and we'll pick up the remnants like talking about like the syrian civil war um well, and another, which yeah. is like, but it's just funny how that's where it's coming from. It's not coming from a place of like compassion. Oh yeah. Or like, and it's not, you know, be and it's not coming from a place of like, oh man, we totally screwed up Iraq. Look at it. It's coming from a place of like, man, no. we totally missed the boat. Like we invaded Iraq and like, didn't even get the oil. He's Take like, he oil, keeps yeah. saying like, man, we got a rough deal. <laughs> it's like, we, well, like, he, what did we get out of it? It was like, he's like saying it from an economic standpoint. <laughs> he's like, China keeps got the bringing oil. it back to like the self-interested American <laughs> yeah. perspective. And I even think that's why he brought up, um, why it was still safe and not completely 
uh, abnormal for him to bring up that Bush didn't keep us safe on mm-hmm, 9-11 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the 28 pages, because even those two things could really be tied back to that same like exactly. American jingoism I was just talking about. Cause it's like Bush didn't keep our homeland safe. You know, like he fucking let the terrorists attack us. Yeah. And then like the second one is like, this goddamn like Bush and his cronies like uh, in the corners, like those oil Saudi Arabians, him and his dad are yep, up with. Yep. Like, he fucking didn't tell us who really attacked us. It has the same, same flavor. Yep. Wait, going um, back to the. So I don't Vic know. Ber- Wait, was his name Vic Berger, the guy who does those videos? Yeah, Vic Berger. Okay, there's this really funny one of Jeb Bush, where it's like Jeb Bush's like worst, saddest moments, because he really is just the most pathetic, sad guy. Who just had is that the zero goodbye to Jeb Bush one with the piano music? Yeah, and stuff? yeah, and, and, and all it was, was was Trump. That one almost like made me cry. And Trump kept saying Jeb is a waste, <laughs> like it just like him echoing yeah, yeah. Jeb is a waste, like <laughs> over and over again. And there's just this sad music, and then it's like him trying to put on the sweatshirt, and like he can't get it over his uh-huh. head. It's like, oh my god, man! Did you see the clip where he's talking about how his son? <laughs> Uh, gave him a weight loss book. He's like, I was very yeah, offended. Yeah, yeah, he was like, the worst Father's Day gift I ever got was from my son. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just something about him is just so weird and it's unlikable. So How did George W. Bush because, get the likability? Because gene? he's like almost like campy. It's like Jeb Bush is almost like you are like too smart to be a Bush like like be likable where it's like yeah. Bush was like dumb and like likable. It's like, you are just kind of dumb, but also extremely unlikable. And I don't know why he seems really insecure yeah. and like he's irritable. Yeah. 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 You saw that video of him uh, being interrupted at that. I think it was like a rotary club <laughs> speech for where the guy like Jeb had is to a cut waste. But did you see this video no. where the guy actually had to like cut off his speech and he got really butthurt on stage and he's like, oh, they're cutting oh, me yeah, off already. Oh, yeah, and then he already. goes and just eats by huh. himself. He just like goes, sits yeah. down and starts like oh, shoveling God, food so in his mouth. Oh, God, that was so painful. Yeah, that's Jeb. So bad. That's Jeb. And, and also another Almost video. Almost makes you feel sorry for yeah, him. Yeah, don't. I know. I know what you mean. <laughs> I, I did too, but then I realized that he's a bush. Um, but another really f- funny video by Vic Berger is, is Melinda. Tr- is her name Melinda Trump? I think. Yeah, Melania, Melania. Melania. Um, But there's a hilarious video of her addressing a crowd. And instead of being like, hello, like I'm Melania. She's like, hello. Like she's on a, like an alien planet with no human around. (laughs) And so it just, it's just, he makes that just echo with like, it's like a pin drops. It's like the most awkward Oh God, his audio work is like half of the reason those videos are (laughs) so good. And then there's the air horn. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see the one with, did you see the one he made right after uh, Chris Christie (laughs) was standing behind him? Where he keeps tapping Chris Christie on the shirt and he does that little weird bell sound and it shows Chris Christie's smile and he does it like over and over and over again. so good. Dude, I swear to God, that's like really getting me through this election. Oh my God. I know. I I tried. It was so depressing. Um, I'm going to plug my movie for a second, if you don't mind. Uh, But I've been really, it's been really depressing at times to try to edit and finish the third part of a very heavy agenda just because of all the awful like source material I'm working with all these people just saying horrible things and trying to manipulate us into war and stuff. So I kind of was inspired by Vic Berger and I tried, um, you know, and it's, it's kind of going to pale in comparison to his work, but I tried to do a little bit of silly editing like that in the movie, like during the election parts. Yeah. Cause I, when I event, when I originally made this, I finished 
the whole thing, like five hour long single movie before the elections even started. Um, and by the time, you know, I decided to split them up and do all this, you know, more flesh them out more into individual documentaries, like just it's the elections ha- happened and I just couldn't ignore, yeah. you know, putting that in as the storyline. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, there's going to be some weird, uh, weird stuff and it's going to be a very present feeling movie. It'll almost be like when you watch a South Park episode that's like about something that happened like a week ago in the news. It's going to feel a little bit like that that when it comes out. (laughs) (laughs) No, I can't wait to watch it. Your, your first two movies were mind blowing. It's like above all, it's not just a movie. It's like a historical record of the times that we live in. And that's, what's really important about it. It's like just taking the most obscure and editing it so well. Like I actually want to hire you as my editor because you're just like so great at it. And, and you, you just have like the perfect imagery going along with the craziest stuff that you're hearing. And, you know, even if you think that you know, you don't because you forget all the things that have happened, all the lies when you see them all put together in this way. It's just, it's just infuriating. But, you know, that's why I like your first two documentaries so much, especially the RT stuff, setting that record straight. And, and um, you know, now we're, I don't know if I told you, but Telesaur is under attack. Um by it's even neocons? crazier. Yeah, well, it's even crazier than RT. Like, RT exists for a very specific purpose. It's not like a leftist revolutionary media source. You know, it's like, ex- exists to expose U.S. hypocrisies, and that's what it's for. Telesaur, on the other hand, was like an actual direct, um, you know, it was created by Venezuela and Cuba, for the most part, and to directly counter, like, U.S. corporate media. Um, and, and mm-hmm. it's coming from like this people's perspective and socialist perspective, whatever. So it's like a completely different beast, but you know, with all the sanctions and the economic, um, attacks from the West on these countries, aside from that, Argentina just had a new president, this guy, Macri, um, Marcio Macri or whatever. And he's basically just shutting down and they invested 16% in the base of Telesaur and he's just totally shutting down the whole network, taking it off the air and also kicking out the bureau um, which could totally tent- send the whole network into a tailspin. Because, I I mean, unless another country steps up, you know, these countries aren't wealthy. Um, they're under constant economic attack. <clears throat> so I don't know what's going to happen, but it's just another another thing that's just really unfortunate. Like one of the only few alternatives networks that's global and that's hosting our show could go under, you know? And so it's just... This is just, we're just under constant attack. Like this, these revolutionary media networks and alternative media networks are constantly under attack. So people can talk shit and say that they're propaganda and, oh, you're working for Venezuela. Um, But yeah, there's a reason why revolutionary truth-telling journalists need to go to state-funded media networks to talk about things that you won't hear elsewhere, like U.S. Empire. So everyone just, you know, show support for Telesaur. um, Just try to go to it more and get the numbers up so we can make it harder for them to shut it down. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bummer um, to hear that that's happening. And I think that the direction that probably a lot of this stuff will go in the future, um, you know, it's already going that way, but just like, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't almost, I almost don't like the concept of crowdsource funding, but I feel like self-funding um, and self-producing is not going to be is going to just get easier and easier yeah. over time um, and I think that you you know depending on what you decide to do 
um, in the future. I think that that's going to be, I mean, I think it already is possible, mm-hmm. um, but it's just going to become more and more possible. So, yeah. Uh, and just, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and this is just another thing we've talked about on, on, on here a lot, but yeah, there's just, there's the credibility in a lot of these millennial news outlets has already starting oh to be God. put under a microscope. A lot of people are starting to criticize Vice more. I'm noticing um, BuzzFeed is totally a joke now. Vox is being made fun of a lot. A lot of these places are already getting injected with so much corporate money and messaging from big, you know, big players. Like, I don't know who. Well, you know, it's funny. Sound no, 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 it's not conspiratorial but- at all. I used to say like, okay, these so-called alt media sites are really part of the corporate media. No, they literally are. If you look at who yeah. owns Vice, Rupert Murdoch, Bill Maher, like all the people, Fox, um, Disney, Disney. Um, and, and then when you go to BuzzFeed and when you go to Daily Beast and Vox, it goes up to whoever the hell like Comcast. It's like, no, they're uh-huh. just literal subsidiaries of corporate of the corporate media conglomerates that we mock incessantly. It's like, yeah, there might be yeah. like slightly more intrepid journalists who like aren't like as shilly as the people on TV. But by all means, don't think that they're alternative media. They are corporate media. That's the rebranding of no, the corporate I mean, media. It's like really funny that I even was like not like really calling it out to what it was. You know what I mean? Well, Vice Until I saw the I actual think is a tricky one. Yeah, I think I think Vice is a tricky one because they were so good at branding. Right. Like I always thought that the magazine was irritating and I never really appreciated and liked it, but I, it was just on like a cultural mm-hmm. level. I just found it like obnoxious and stupid um, and not like it wasn't, they weren't into the same like music yeah. and stuff I was into. So I just didn't really like it. Um, but when the news channel started, I remember I was even kind of like taken in by yeah, it. Like too. I was like, oh, some of this is like, is, is really like solid right. stuff. Like it's really well done. Right. Um, and I, and, and enough of it was like apolitical right. enough where I guess I bought into right. it. So for me, it was more of like a. It took me a while, and once I re, once I came away and was like, "Oh, weird!" Like this Russian. Ru- it was. It was, and I've said this before, but it wasn't until the Sochi Olympics Russian oh, roulette right, special right, 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 right. where I fully realized what was happening. And even to this day, when I try to explain it to people, it still comes off and sounds conspiratorial because. Their branding is so good. If you try to describe the same thing to somebody about Fox News who's on the left, they would completely believe you. They have no mm-hmm. problem. But if you try to explain to them like the whole reason why it seems like they're taking this certain perspective on Ukraine and you know all the stuff, it's or like gay rights thing in Russia, like why they focus so much on that. Um, you almost kind of sound nutty when trying to explain it. So like. That's another thing that I tried to put into the third part of a very heavy agenda is like an actual explanation that goes in depth about why vice is very problematic. Yeah. It's um, just a cool rebranding and, of American exceptionalism. It's like, yeah, that's great. It's just a millennial. Yeah. And they're Canadian too. They're not even American. And I think that also explains in part why they can act like and say, oh yeah, we're not, we're not like taking like an editorial slant like you know on a, but you're on friends with obama and like obama sort of visits America. the bureau like that's that's not exactly that's not cool like i don't <laughs> no, that's not, not cool. cool or hip like for biden to come by and have like a sandwich with shane smith and everyone's like hanging out with him like that, that that's vile um if if any like russian 
government official, you know, like Putin came to RT, I'd be like, this is insane. Oh, look, it's exactly like they say it is. You know, it's like that would be like a comical yeah. <laughs> like thing. I'd be like, wow, well, this is amazing. But it's like that is actually happening at Vice. <laughs> like, no, and it's just it's like the in it's just like by and I don't want to get too much into Vice. There'll be a whole yeah. 20 minute long section about yeah. it in a very heavy agenda three. Um, So just wait until that comes mm-hmm. out. But but just going on what you just said about like what kind of stuff, um, you know, would be like too much of a line for you. Like if Putin mm-hmm. came to RT, be like, what the fuck? Uh, th- this is what kind of stuff they're writing about in BuzzFeed, which is almost surreal. This is in 2016. It seems like something you would read during the McCarthy era. Rosie Gray wrote an article about uh, Dana Rohrbacher, congressman, um, who happens to be one of the only guys who grilled uh, Newland on neo-Nazis in Ukraine and and actually grilled Liz Wall mm-hmm. and Peter Pomerantsev about how absurd their perspective was about the Kremlin propaganda machine and all that. Um, Rosie Gray is basically writing an article about him, how he's like a Russian shill. Uh, and the article um, is essentially like outing this this guy for like colluding with Russians who are on the sanctions list, like doing their dirty work. Um, and and her whole article is about that. And I just find that just so strange. That this is in BuzzFeed. Yeah, I mean, like they're trying to shame a congressman, you know, in the same way that they would you would shame a congressman back in the fifties uh, and sixties for being a communist. Yeah, exactly. And everyone follow it's Adam like Johnson's Twitter feed because he really just he like scours it more than anyone. I think just goes through all these ridiculous sites and points out how insanely cartoonish. Their depictions of Russia. It's like, it's like, damn, they must have just like a guy drawing Russian, like Putin caricatures all day. It's like their graphics team just must be like all anti-Russian stuff because that's really it's like what Daily it is. Beast? Yeah. Daily Beast. Um, yeah. And it's just amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it really, really is when you, the agenda is not too hidden. Um, but when you really like look at it, like if you just type in Russia, I mean, you can just see that that's like 90% of the stuff, like all their editors cover. It's like, you're telling me yeah, there's I mean, not a Jamie line. Kirchick, you're telling me there's not an editorial line there. Come on. Yeah. And it just gets so ridiculous how conspiratorial certain neocons are, the same neocons who criticize yeah. conspiracy yeah, and theorists like the, on the And it's the like left. you could say the same thing about RT and be like, yeah, you guys are all obsessed with America. It's like, I'm American. Why are you guys super obsessed with Russia? That's a question that I would actually yeah. like to know. Like, I'm American. I can explain why I'm obsessed with this country because I actually, it's the empire. I want to change it. It's killing a ton of people every day. Why are you obsessed with Russia? Why? Because they're patriotic and they know weird. that if they fucking manipulate the public into being scared of Russia, then super they'll fucking weird. be more patriotic too. Jamie Kirchick just wrote an article um, called Donald oh, Trump's Russia, Russian weird. Connections. I thought he was fired. I didn't see him pop up in a while. And the, the message of the article is basically that the reason Donald Trump is doing so well in this country is because he's actually a Russian Manchurian oh, candidate. Great. And that uh, his rise is due to all these secret oligarchs and and like Russian, you know, like power brokers who are like making him rise to power. Okay, Jamie actually needs and this help. Is, that's that's actually yeah. psychotic. This is coming off Holy of the heels damn. two weeks earlier. Max Boot and Jamie Kurchik and all these neocons were all retweeting this story about how uh, like all of Trump's uh, followers on Twitter and like Twitter retweeters were all Russian sock puppet accounts. Excuse me. Yeah. So basically saying that like 
Trump is like a like a coup d'état, like ru- wow. like Russia is like. So Trump is so Jamie Kirchner saying Trump is a false flag. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, damn. I'm gonna take off. Really great talking. Is there anything else that you wanted to say? Uh, everybody, check out Abby's uh, episode about Hillary Clinton of the Empire Files that just came out, and uh, a very heavy agenda part three, maintaining the world order. Probably in a week from now, the actual final cut will be released. I know I keep shifting the release date around. And I'm sorry about that, but um, it's going to be out on DVD and on demand. All right. And uh, you can find find more about it um, at uh, veryheavyagenda.com. All right. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. Please donate to mediaroots.org to keep up our website costs, um, the editing, all the stuff that... Um, kind of goes behind the scenes if it's for the radio show please type in radio donation into the info um and yeah just spread the word and check out the website and check out my brother's movie and subscribe to empire files on youtube and thanks for listening to us rant about everything hey.